JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline from Pigs.com, it's uh, Jeff Rabjohns who is with us. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Awesome, man. How are you? I am great. I, it's funny. The 9 o'clock get-together always seems troublesome for anybody. But coming up tomorrow night, I'm trying to look at this two different ways, and I want to get your opinion on it. In, in preparation, obviously, I look ahead to IU and Purdue Part 2 on Saturday. Is this something good to get them ready, whereas I don't think Purdue plays this week, or is it a detriment because it's tough as hell to play? It's a 9 o'clock start. It's a Tuesday night. How do you judge the expectation of tomorrow night in terms of preparation for Saturday in West Lafayette? Well, I think it's it's better if it's a Tuesday game than a Wednesday game because you get a little – you just it's one more day to prep for your Saturday opponent. Uh, I don't love the 9 p.m. starts. Um, you know, you're getting out of there, best-case scenario, 11.45-ish, something like that, um, hopping on the plane. So you get back to Bloomington, that's probably only about an hour flight, 12.45. So it's not terribly late, but but it's not great. Um, so I think it's eh, it's just okay. Um, it's, it's not a terrible thing. Um, and I know a lot of coaches are not fans of the whole week off. You know, they really like, you know, Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Sunday kind of thing. So, uh, overall, I, you know, I'm, I'm 50-50 on it. I don't, I don't think it's a, a big thing either way other than 9 p.m. starts. I just – I am not a fan of 9 p.m. starts. Jeff Rabjohns joins us. About this IU team, it was a grinder and it was a win at Michigan. You know, we talked about that. Um, it was a grinder and a win at home against Illinois on Saturday. When, when IU gets in a position where you got to grind one out, and especially given Illinois without – its best offensive player or some of the reasons behind that now it's a good thing it's a win but still you would think maybe there would be a little bit more margin for error that there there wasn't in this case on saturday what, what took place in that game that you noticed as to what iu needs to get better at going into this week with michigan state and purdue on the road well i think the biggest reason they're having tight games is one they are very, very, very dependent upon Trace Jackson Davis to, to be Superman. I mean, they are as heavily dependent upon one star player as maybe any really good team in the country. There's some mid to lows that are that are dependent upon one guy, but I'm talking about teams in the top 25. You know, I mean, I think everybody saw the stat. He has four career 25.10 rebound, five block games. No other Big Ten player has more than one in the last 25 years. So they're really asking him to be Superman pretty much every game. And Jalen Hutchfino has been really good. 
Um, I know he had a tough shooting game at, 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 against Illinois, five for 17 from the field. But the last 77 seconds, he makes the, 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 the key two. He makes two free throws. He breaks the press. Three big-time plays that really helped win them that game in the last 77 seconds. So they're kind of dependent upon two, ga- two guys. And I think the other thing is this. You know, they're just not getting much from three-point range. I mean, they rank 356 in the country in three-point rate, which means what percentage of your shots come from the arc. They're 356. And then if you look at points created from the arc, um, they're 337th in the country. So they're not get, they're not taking many threes, and they're not producing a ton of points from the arc. So when you're when you're not doing that. It, the 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 analytics suggest you're going to be in more tight games. So I think that's part of the reason that they struggle sometimes to create separation. Um, you know, I mean, even at home against Rutgers, they win, but they win by six. Yeah. You know, they beat Purdue, which was a phenomenal win. I mean, you know, Purdue is number one in the country, not taking anything away from the win, but they win by five. You know, Illinois win by three. Michigan win by one. So. They they deserve credit for winning these close games, which, let's be honest, last four or five years, they were losing those games, pretty much all of them. Right. You know, any close game, they were losing. So they get credit for winning. But you asked why are they you know struggling to create separation. I think the big reason is they don't take many threes and they don't get um, very many points from three. Again, you know, when you're sitting there at 337th in the country in percentage of points per game produced from the arc – you're really dependent upon your inside game. I'll tell you what else, Jeff. Your margin for error is really tight because they got back and had a tremendous opportunity at Northwestern last Wednesday night, but it was an absolute slog to get back because you just don't have much of an option at all to try to get back into it with a three-point shot. No, no, they really don't. And then in that game, you know, they did get some timely threes. You know, Trey Galloway had a big one. Miller Cop had a big one. Um, and, and they got they had a stretch there where the, the three-pointer was very helpful for them. But when that's not a regular thing of your offense, you're really dependent upon your defense to clamp down, and you're really dependent upon your inside game. And you're asking, I mean, they're asking Trace Jackson Davis to carry an unbelievable load. And – one of the reasons I think he should get National Player of the Year uh, consideration is when you look at percentage of points that he's asked to create, percentage of rebounds, um, his shot blocking, you know, it, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who's been more consistently impactful for a top-20 team in the country. I don't know P- Purdue fans are going to run to Zach Eady, and yeah. that's very fair. He obviously deserves National Player of the Year consideration as well. But – when you look at percentage of a team's points, rebounds, blocks, Trace Jackson Davis is carrying an enormous load for a national top 20 team. I, I was going to ask you that, too, because I was going to go – it seems to me like both Trace and Zach Eady are incredibly comparable about what they mean to their team in terms of the load offensively that they carry. I, I don't know if you have done the research on this. I'd love to know, you know, how close or maybe in this case not close this might be because at times these two teams can be eerily similar in terms of how they're scoring, who's doing it, and then who's not. Oh yeah, very much so. Um I think both teams for the most part this season, uh, they go as their stars go. 
And, you know, I don't know exactly the total, you know, comparison. You can, do, you can compare raw numbers, and that's part of it. Um, but I think it would be interesting to look at, you know, percentage of points, percentage of rebounds, percentage of block shots that each guy is getting for his team. Um, heck, that's, that's a good story idea, man. You may have just helped me out with a good story idea going into no, I, I'm, I'm here to help. I am. I, I, I try to not to be a burden. I try to help. I, I have, honestly, on this show, without any research whatsoever, which is – incredibly unsurprising is I, I I think that these guys are right there together and their team success is for the most part I won't say solely but for the most part reliant on what these guys do night in and night out and, and both are going to struggle in certainly made threes and, and, and I, I guess it's a bad thing because you look back at Purdue they got down you know at double figures they end up coming back in the second half but these two teams to me if you get down are not going to shoot their way back into it by going down low and getting two-point baskets from their stars it's just not something you see very often really on any level anymore no no it's not I mean the game has really changed. Um, you know, you look at uh, Alabama sitting there, number one in the country. You know, they've got a coach who, you know, um, I think everybody's seen some of the stories. You know, no mid range, no mid range. Do not shoot mid ranges. Take threes or throw it inside or drive it. And that that's what the game is becoming more, more and more. And I, I think you know to have success at the highest possible levels. Um, you know, I, I think you have to have a, a good percentage of your points come from three to give yourself the best chance to win. Now, that doesn't mean you can't win doing it differently. You, you certainly can. Um, you know, Indiana and Purdue are examples. Although Purdue, you know, with, with Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer, I think you know they're, they're shooting the ball reasonably well. Although yeah. IU's three point percentage uh, on the season um, is, is actually higher than Purdue's. You know, I think there's sort of a perception because IU doesn't take a lot of threes. Some people say, oh, that. They're a bad shooting team. They're actually not a bad shooting team, percentage-wise. Indiana's a good shooting team, percentage-wise, from threes. The issue for IU is that they just don't take very many. And it's that old thing. I can't remember exactly where the analytics break it down. It's somewhere around 42 to 40%, 42 to 44%. If you're shooting around there, percentage-wise, you should take more. Because even in, let's say you're shooting 44%, if you take more and the percentage drops down to 40 percentage drops down, but your points per possession actually goes up. So on the analytics, you should actually, when you're a good shooting team, you should take more even if the percentage comes down slightly. Now with IU, when you have Trace Jackson Davis inside, who's been so dominant, or when you're, when you're Purdue and you have a Zach Eady, it's very understandable, you know, ride your horse. You know, when you have an All-American, a National Player of the Year candidate, certainly there's a case to be made for, hey, play through your stud. You see a lot more of Trace bringing it up, you know, not to start a set or something, but bringing it up on on a break. How has that evolved over this past year or maybe even years, for example? Sure, sure. That, that's something Woodson likes. And it goes back to when he had certain guys in the NBA who he felt could bring the ball up. Again, not like a point guard or anything, or not like you said, to start a set, but, but bring it up. And the idea is, um, if the guy who gets the rebound can turn around and start bringing it up immediately, it, it puts a little more pressure on the defense because the defense has to try to get set faster. They don't have that extra time for the guy to get the defensive rebound, stand there for a second, the guard come toward him, which means the guard is usually coming backward toward away from his offensive basket, get the ball to guard. 
So Trace gets a rebound turn, starts bringing it up. The idea is, you know, just puts a little more, a second or two more pressure on the defense. And then that's something that Woodson likes. You know, it's something that they practice, something they work on. Um, it's something I think he'll probably do with Malik Renault moving forward. Um, I don't know about next year, but certainly, you know, it, it is it is a staple and an idea that Woodson does like. So Jeff Rabjohns of Peaks.com, IU, Michigan State tomorrow night at 9 o'clock, East Lansing, and then on the road at Mackey coming up on Saturday evening against the Purdue Boilermakers. Uh, again, Rabbi's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So you had reported, tweeted out after the game on Saturday afternoon that Trace Jackson Davis had told you that he is not going to come back. This will be his final season in Bloomington playing for IU. And I was kind of curious, was that at all based upon – uh, just a decision where he is right now, is it based upon information he's gathered? I, I'm, how did he ultimately, I guess, come to this conclusion? What was that reason? Well, you know, I don't want to speak specifically for Trace, but based upon the vibe that I get, um, you know, he's he's gotten um, pretty good feedback from, you know, the NBA, not mock drafts, not people like me in the media, but actual NBA feedback. Um, there have been NBA scouts at, at most of the IU games. IU had a pro day earlier in the year um, when, when you know, all, I think all but one or two NBA teams were there. So NBA scouts have seen him up close. They've seen him in practice. Um, and one thing that's interesting, and people are going to freak out when I say this, but, you know, he does shoot the ball pretty well in practice. There are NBA scouts who have told me, you know, we're not scared of this shot. You know, he, he, he's not going to be taking him in the college game. We understand that. But we're not scared of the shot. And so I think that's part of it. Um, and I think the other part is, you know, he's probably as hot as he's ever going to be. Um, he's, he's, you know, 22, 23 years old. And there's the, the belief that another year in college does not change anything as far as what his entry point into college basketball would be. Entry point meaning whether you get drafted or an undrafted free agent or whatever. And right now, the chances of him going um, in the top half of the second round are pretty strong. And maybe with workouts within the individual NBA teams, if he shoots them all well, maybe he moves up a little bit. So I think you add all those factors together, and I think he and, and his family just, you know, sat down and decided, you know, this is the best move to to go ahead and go become a pro now. Obviously, he'd return to college basketball and dominate again, but all that would be doing is it would be doing two things. One, you get a year older, which makes you slightly less attractive to the NBA. Uh, you risk injury, which isn't great, and you risk the fact that maybe you have a bad year. You know, and I don't know that Trace Jackson Davis is ever going to play better than he is right now. His January and February have been phenomenal basketball. If he played an entire season like he has played in January and February, he might right now be the hands-down national player of the year. And so I think from his perspective, all these things add up to now is the best time to go ahead and, and, and turn pro. Are, are these two of the most productive months for an individual IU player that we have seen? In modern times, yes, without question. Um, I mean, I think you'd have to go back to, um, I mean, as far as production overall, when you look at points, rebounds, and block shots. Cause, I mean, I he's, mean, he's had some Steve Downing type of games there. Which, that's what I was going to say. I yeah. mean, you got to go back to Downing, and if you're talking about scoring, or if you want to go scoring, rebounds, and assists, you might have to go back to Mike Woodson. 
Um, like when, when he came back from that, that from his right. back surgery and he had that incredible eight game stretch. Um, but yeah, you'd have to go back 25, 30 years, maybe more. And if you're talking about po- dominant post players, you really might have to go back to Steve Downing. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that. The other thing, Jeff, in closing here that I, I was thinking about, I, I so want to see them get hot. Um, if for nothing else, because I, I don't have a rooting interest, uh, but if for nothing else, I, I want I don't want the well look what he did individually, but look what he did not do in the NCAA tournament. And I don't want that to be brought up. I want it to be balanced because I think this kid has worked so incredibly hard on on becoming a high-level basketball player and, and trying to counter all that people said that he wasn't or was never going to be. And I want to be able to check that thing off the list. I don't want that to be something they can can go back and say, well, look, individually, great. Look at the numbers. But collectively, what did it lead to? I hope that he puts that to bed this season. Sure, and I, I think anybody that knows Trace, um, you know, uh, wants that for him because I think some of the criticism has been incredibly misguided. Not only unfair, but it's been misguided because on a couple of teams, you know, there wasn't a lot around him, and that's not his fault. You know, he, he, he wasn't in charge of recruiting. He was not in charge of roster management. He was in charge of playing his butt off, which he's done incredibly well for four years. I mean, 2000, the first – I mean, think about this. The only player in Indiana basketball history, all the great players that they've had, there's one who has 2,000 points and 1,000 rebounds. One. And that, that's, that's pretty crazy to think about. Um, but, yeah, I mean, sometimes people say, you know, I think you and I talked about this before. It's a little nostalgia thing. Sometimes people love somebody who, oh, they, they won a lot, so I love so-and-so. Well, why do you love him? Well, because he played on my favorite team, and they won a lot when he was there, and, that, and they won a lot, and that made me happy. And that's very understandable. It's a normal, it's a normal you know, nostalgia is a normal thing for, for fans. But that does not take away from achievement. And what Trace Jackson Davis has achieved uh, can no way be impugned. But I do agree with your point that an NCAA tournament run just takes that negative argument off the table. Yeah, And yeah. people would not be able to say, well, he was great, but didn't do much in the tournament. Well, I mean, know? Yeah, he it, squashed it, it, a lot it, of things. It, it, yeah. I mean, he, Jeff, he has it, it, nobody ever thought he could be an, an on or off the floor leader. He's he's done that. I, I mean, he's checked off a lot of those things. People thought that he wasn't going to be able to do. And, and this would be one that would be significant because it's always going to be where some will will double back and, and talk about if there's not a getting hot streak or some sort of run in this NCAA tournament. Finally, Xavier Johnson. Um, what, what are we thinking here? Anything at all? Uh, I, I still think late February. We're almost there. So late. Are we talking next week? <laughs> I'm not going to put it on you, so I'm just curious. So. No, we're, we're in the later portion of February. I said late February. Late, late, late February. Um, and then, and even that's not a guarantee. Yeah. I, I just think from, from, from the vibe that I get, that's the most likely scenario. And again, when somebody's coming back from something like foot surgery, you know, they got to be healthy enough not just to walk around like you or me or go, you know, run up and down playing noon ball. They got to be able to cut and move and plant and stop in, in, a, in a high major college basketball game. So most likely scenario is not a guarantee. It is. I want to make sure that that's clear. It's not a guarantee. But late February, um, that's what I got told 
while ago. That's what I got told a week ago. That's what I, you know, got told recently. You stick to so it. I still think. I still think. Well, I'm just saying the what I've been told hasn't changed. And again, what the way it's been phrased is most likely scenario. So I think I still think late February is most likely scenario. So Jeff Rabjohns at Pigs.com on the road tomorrow with East Lansing and then obviously West Lafayette coming up on Saturday evening. You got Michigan State, you got Purdue on the schedule this week. A big one for IU basketball. Jeff's via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Pileline. It's always a pleasure, my friend. I appreciate you. Shaden, always good talking to you, bud. We'll see you soon. On the whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Hotline, friend of the show from Basketball News, coming off the Salt Lake City All-Star Weekend. Next up, here in Indy, Evan Sidery is with us. Are you a big fan of All-Star Weekend as a whole? Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, it was really a lot bigger deal than it is now, in my opinion. I mean, it just seems like guys were trying a lot harder back then in the games. We saw a lot better dunk competitions, for example. I think it was a better back then, and uh, looking at last night, I mean, it was a fun event, fun weekend, but kind of expected nowadays how it went. Yeah, I I just don't – you mentioned expected. I don't put any expectations. That's how it is, and that's how it's going to be until further notice. And and I kind of – it's not the same, but in my head, it's the same. It's like the Daytona 500 and everybody complaining about that. Oh, man, look at the way the overtime. That's the way that it is. And I don't see a change on the horizon at any point. So, you know, either you watch it or you don't watch it in this case. And uh, I know a lot of people chose, I guess, last night not to watch the All-Star game because of the lack of of what people would call real game-time basketball. But, again, with that event, I don't know what you would expect. Yeah, that's a really valid point for sure. I mean, we saw great individual games last night. I mean, Halliburton did great in his minutes. We saw Tatum, of course, Jason Tatum go for 55 points. I, I mean, overall, it was all based around offense nowadays. I mean, as, as we all know, the modern NBA is all about scoring. So I don't think people mind the points last night and the great individual performances. I think the Elam mending, too, like you mentioned earlier, I think that's a really good good idea to implement the last couple of years because it actually makes the game interesting the last couple of minutes. Yeah, and I don't even know if it still still does with that. What do you think about Mac McClung? Did he kind of, with that effort, really, I thought all three performed at a high level, the highest level we've seen in a while if you pay attention to the dunk contest. But what did that bring on Saturday night to you? Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I would say it was probably the best dunk contest we've seen in about easily three or four years, maybe even going back to Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine about six, five or six years ago. But I mean, honestly, McClung, I mean, I followed him a little bit coming up throughout the high school ranks. I know he played a little bit Hinkle Fieldhouse when he was at Georgetown, played for Texas Tech a little bit after once he transferred. Very athletic player. I mean, this is expected if you've, if you've heard about him growing up. He was a, really a hoop mixtape kind of player all throughout his career. He's been super athletic. He's a really good dunker, of course, and we saw it on display in the dunk contest there. It'll be fun to see him defend his crown next year in Indy because I think he mentioned after afterwards in postgame that he has three or four more dunks he hadn't showed, shown yet either. So that'll be a fun little storyline heading into next year in Indy. Is he um is he on the end of the bench in Philly? What what what's his status? He plays for the Blue Coats, which is the Sixers. Uh, affiliate uh, 
but he technically is on a two-way contract, but he's not really up that much in, on the actual roster. So is that accurate, how much he's made in his basketball career professionally compared to what he made over the weekend winning that, where it was more? Think, is that accurate? I think that's actually accurate because I think the G League salaries right now for a player like him are around $100,000 or so, and I think he made $100,000 winning the dunk contest. So if it's not exceeding it, it's really, really close to matching him. So Evan, yeah, Evan Sidery, that is incredible right there. Uh, basketball news, talking about NBA All-Star weekend. Indy is, again, as we mentioned, on deck coming up next year. What what does that that bring? And did everything go as according to plan in Salt Lake City this year? Yeah, I think it did go to plan just based off the Jazz. They got their, their star in there in Morgan Market, and he kind of – had a little sub-headline throughout the weekend as an all-star starter, replacing, of course, Kevin Durant, who got traded over to the Phoenix Suns. And that was a good little storyline for them. They had the skills competition as well with the Team Jazz. So those are kind of things I expect next year for Indy. If Halliburton has another great year next year, or if they get lucky in the lottery and get Wimbenyama or Matherin takes a leap next year, it'd be fun to see maybe one or a couple of those guys next year be in the all-star game as well and then maybe you see Halliburton and Buddy Heald back in the three-point contest for example and then also just the attraction of All-Star Weekend every single superstar in the NBA is going to be in Indiana for three days so that's going to be a really fun fun display downtown from Thursday through Sunday night it should be a really fun atmosphere with everyone in in, in town so I got to get him out to one of my pickup games then you think any of those guys will come out yeah get somebody down there I mean, maybe if you offer him some cash, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, there'll be none of that, Evan, let me tell you. No <laughs> offering of, of cash. Uh, Evan Sidery, Basketball News on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Before we get to where we are right now, Pacers and, and other teams and stretch run of the regular season, have you had the opportunity much past Winbayama or you know Scoot Henderson uh, anybody else as far as the top three or four projections are concerned for the draft to look where the Pacers may end up in the range of what six somewhere in that neighborhood have a couple in round number one, what they might be looking at as far as players of interest. I know that things will change and, and change, I'm sure, dramatically, Evan, but just sitting here right now, any thoughts on what the Pacers could add to this team, the way that their season right now is headed? Yeah, there's a couple names up near the top of the board. I think Scoot Henderson with the G League Ignite, a really dynamic scoring guard. I actually don't know if he's actually the best fit in Indiana with Tyrese Halliburton because he'll want the ball a lot in his hands. He's only six foot one or six foot two, I believe, as well. So he'd be a really small backcourt with him and Halliburton. So I'm not really a fan of him and his fit in Indiana. But he's a great player overall. Uh, a couple guys I'm actually really intrigued by play for Overtime Elite, this high school affiliate uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia. It's the Thompson Twins, Ahmed and Asar. They're both about six foot seven, six foot. Wait a minute, the, the Thompson Twins was a great band of the '80s, so this is different. Yes, yes, different. That, oh man, different. I love Doctor Doctor. Can't you see I'm burning, burning? This is not the Thompson Twins you're talking about. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, they're they're great two way players, and um, I actually think I believe Asar. Is, is the, the longer wing type player. A men is more of the ball handling type. I might have that flip flop around there. I'll have to double check afterwards. But both those guys kind of fit the same mold the Pacers need as far as an athletic wing, a developing shooter, a good defender. 
you have a good enough roster where you can develop those guys for a year or two, and hopefully they blossom when Halliburton and Matheson are reaching, reaching their prime years. So that could be a really good idea there. There's a couple other names down the board. And I also, um, there's not, I haven't really dove deep into the board just yet past the top six or seven guys. So I think probably the Thompson twins are the two best fits there, but I actually have an idea for the Pacers. I, I'm just thinking long-term with them. Having all these picks, we heard, uh, according to ESPN, Zach Lowe, that the Pacers did indeed offer three first-round picks for OG and Anobi. I do wonder if they do fall in the lottery, for example, John, like let's say eight or nine, if they don't retread it off with Toronto or what, another win-now type of player if they have a good end of the season. So you you think that maybe, you know, we, we, we thought that the whole OG and Anobi thing might be done, but maybe – Maybe it's it's brought back to life a little bit here, correct? Yeah, I think it all depends on how the lottery shakes out. Because right. this is a really deep lottery, a really good class, to be honest. I've heard about six or seven guys, maybe eight, that could fit in this type of class that are really good players. Some may, may take longer than others to develop, but it's, a, it's highly regarded around the league as a very strong draft class. But if the Pacers, let's say, fall from – or if they have a good end of the season, or they finish 8 or 9 and they fall to 10 or 11 in the lottery, for example. Low chance of that happening, but there's still a chance. I think that that's a scenario there where the Pacers could really explore trading, uh, restarting those talks at Toronto, for example, for OG Ananobi, or another win-now type of veteran who's on the market. Because this Pacers team, they only need a couple pieces on the wing. They have a really good young core. If they feel like the, the draft at that point around the, the back half of the lottery isn't strong enough, Right. I wouldn't be stunned off if they did something like that. I think it honestly makes a lot of sense that that scenario doesn't unfold that way. I've said this all along. I Somebody that's already established, somebody that is more ready-made, I would almost – and again, it, it depends on the whole – the contract situation. But if it's somebody that, that fit the mold of this team right now, I wouldn't at all be sad if they decided to do that. No, I think it, when you look at long-term at their salary sheet, too, you have Tyrese Halliburton coming up on his max extension – uh, he, he's eligible to sign that, actually, this upcoming summer, which will go into effect in the summer of 2024. I think this could be the offseason here where you could make a, a type of move for an Ananobi, for example, that type of mold of player where you get a veteran in here where you've seen already when this team is fully healthy in the first half of the season. This is a capable team that can, that can compete with anyone. When Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin and Miles Turner are all firing on all cylinders there, and I think, honestly, if they were to get lottery luck, or if not, if they do fall back, this is a good foundation for this team where they can build off of a really strong season heading into 2024. It's Evan Basketball News with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. What do you think this season, I was talking with Jeff Rabjohns of Peaks.com a little bit earlier regarding Trace Jackson Davis, telling him Saturday that this was going to be his final season collegiately in Bloomington. What, what has this season done for him, anything at all has in the eyes of those NBA folks with his game at the next level? Yeah, it seems like just the big question around Trace Darrow's career. And I think he's kind of proven in some facets. I'll explain here in a second that he's improved on the kind of overshadow this. But I think just the reason why he's not going to get higher than a mid second round grade on most teams' boards is because he can't shoot on the perimeter. That's just a simple point in the NBA. If you can't space the floor, it's going to be hard for you to find minutes, and Trace just hasn't shown that throughout his career so far at IU. Obviously a dominant, dominant player in the collegiate ranks, but that's why some teams are trepidatious about Trace in the next level because if you can't space the floor and provide that optimal space for their teammates, 
is he able to play more than 15, 20 minutes a night and be maybe more than just a, a microwave scoring big man, which I think he could be right away in the NBA. And I think something like the NBA Combine, for example, John, I think it takes place right after the lottery in Chicago where they have five-on-five scrimmages, three-on-threes, the testing and stuff like that. That's an, that's an environment where I think Trace is going to thrive, and that's where he could boost his stock a lot to like the late first-round range to potentially maybe the top 20 if all goes well. And that, that's, that's a stage to me where if you're an IU fan, circle around mid-May when the combine happens because that could be a, a really big uh, event where Trace gets his name buzzing out there. So we, um, we've described him enough as you know a, a rim runner. There's no doubt he's got you know NBA-level athleticism. He's, he's left-handed, which I'm sorry, that screws everybody up. I don't care how high-level smart basketball you are. You know, left-handed and having that hammer that he throws – you know, can be difficult to uh, to guard against with his level of athleticism. Is there anybody comparable right now to to his game that's that's getting more clock time than you know just sitting on the end of somebody's bench? Yeah, it's really that's a good question because he's shown throughout this season like two pauses he's really improved on. He, he's shown throughout his career he was a great defender, but he's become an elite rim protector this year, and that's going to really translate immediately to the NBA level, in my opinion. So he's going to be a plus defender in the NBA. But the, I think the really underrated aspect, I think you've told this before, is his playmaking ability. And he's really improved that this year, setting teammates up. When he gets to the trap or the double team put on him, he knows where to put on the perimeter, and more often than not, it leads to a bucket, which is a great sign for him long term if let's say if he does need to be more a playmaker on the next level he does check that box too so he's a dominant scorer down low he can maybe make a couple hook shots here and there but the big question to me heading into his nba career is going to be the shot if he, if he can become a three-point shooter he's going to have a 10-15 year career in the nba Evan Sidery of Basketball News with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline Jalen Hood Shafino is a freshman, he's had some really good moments, some okay moments. Uh, most people would suggest that he is legit a draft-worthy type of player after season number one in Bloomington. Do you believe that? I do. I, I think he is definitely in that top 25 range. I wouldn't know if I'd go higher than that right now because he, he's shown some great flashes for sure. A couple games, he's really gone out of his way to show he's an NBA-worthy player. But other nights, he's just been so inconsistent where it's hard for me to get a read on how he's going to adjust to the next level right away as a one-and-done prospect. And he's a guy to me especially. I know we know Trace is not staying back next year. But I think Jalen Huchifino is a player to me where if he does stay back his sophomore season, he could really improve his stock to being a potential lottery pick because he has a great shooting stroke. He's a great defender when he's locked in, a good playmaker. He has great size for the NBA as a guard. I think he's a player to me where if he does decide to become the leader of this team for IU in 2023-24, I think he could be a lottery pick next year. It's Again, Evan Sider with us. Let's just say for S's and G's right here, we were allowed to – Oh, I don't know. Repick the top 10, maybe top eight, maybe in last year's June NBA drafts. How would that go to you? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I would still probably go Paulo at one for Orlando. He's been fantastic this year. I can't say anything else about that. Oklahoma City, I would probably still go Chet Holmgren. I know he's been out all year, but his fit with the team with Josh Gideon, Chagos Alexander is still good to me. I think Houston at three, that's where I'd probably go Matherin. I, I think he's really shown, I mean, Pacers fans know, of course, how great of a year he's had. He's shown he's a great bucket getter already in the NBA, 20-plus point-per-game score. 
So I think he'd probably go three to Houston. And that would certainly shake things up, wouldn't it? As far as the board goes for them, you'd probably have Jaden Ivey still going to Detroit at five. And then from there, um, Jabari Smith probably would go before that point. So, yeah, that would be the five. And then let me think. Keegan Murray is one that I think we're, we, you haven't brought up yet. Keegan Murray, there, thank you. That's who I was going to take my time yeah. there. Keegan Murray, I think, would be going six there to the Pacers. So, I think in that scenario where Matherin would, let's say, go above them hypothetically, there's a good scenario where Indy still would have gotten Keegan Murray or Jaden Ivey. So, that, I think it worked out either I, way in the end. I haven't see, seen too much of Jabari Smith, but it, it seems like at least numbers-wise, other than what you mentioned in Chet Holmgren being unavailable because of that injury, it seems like these guys have put up pretty good numbers. There hasn't been a, a legitimate disappointment among these names, correct? Uh, I would say maybe disappointment would be Jabari Smith in Houston, but the the environment in Houston right now is a disaster. It's all young guys. There's no veteran leaders there. They're they're, they're outright tanking to lose games at this point to try to get Victor Wembanyama. I think they've lost 20 of their last 22 games. So I think they're the youngest roster in the NBA, too. They have about eight or nine lottery picks they have on their roster over the last four or five years. They're trying to develop talent there, but it's not leading the wins, and it's just not a good environment for Jabari Smith and the rest of that core right now. I think he's averaging around 10 points per game. I'm not sure, but it's just not a good good atmosphere for him right now. Jaden Ivey, 15 and a half, or at least near that, in his rookie season so far. I think in uh, 55 in all games. How do you view so far his rookie season in Detroit? I think it's been really good, to be honest, just because I had expectations going into the season where he'd be playing most of his minutes alongside Kate Cunningham, but Cunningham's been out for most of the season with a season-ending shin injury, which I think he suffered back in November. So Jaden and I has been getting the ball a lot in his hands for the Pistons, getting a lot of on-ball reps that Cade Cunningham would have gotten, and he's been doing very well in that. We've seen over the last month or so he's translating his offensive game very well in transition as a scorer he's improving as a playmaker rapidly over the last month or so too he's we know when he's locked in defensively he can show it but it's inconsistent but his offense and his speed on the court is immediately translated to the nba has been dynamic on some nights for detroit a lot of losing for the pistons this year but him and Cade cunningham long term if they get lucky in the lottery this year and get another top pick that's gonna be a really fun core in detroit um if people knew what we have seen over you know the season so far through the All-Star break with Andrew Nemhart, would his draft position go a hell of a lot different than it did? Oh, for sure. I think Nemhart would be one of the biggest riders on the board, to be honest, because he went 31 in this past draft. And I think you might have some executives out there that might be pushing him for the top 15 or the late lottery. I mean, just with the, how consistent he's been most nights defensively, a great playmaker, just a, a, a guy who can plug into any NBA team and he'll not complain about his role. He does his job, and he does his job really well. And any NBA team would want that, and Nemhart's shown that throughout this year. So I'd probably say he'd easily go top 20, potentially, in that top 15. Rest of the season, what are we thinking about? Certainly around here, um, it's been a lot of losing, although they, they did end on a high note against Chicago. The Pacers start out Thursday against the Boston Celtics. The remainder of the season here, and what you expect with the the reshuffling of the NBA deck now where it's going to start to get real with new faces and new places for the stretch run of this regular season? Yeah, I think all eyes at the moment are based on Phoenix and what happens when Kevin Durant makes his debut next week. I, I think it's going to be 
them in Phoenix, it's going to be incredible to watch that offense with Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre, and very top-heavy roster there. But with Kevin Durant on board, I think it's easy to say they're the title favorites right now in the NBA. Of course, Nikola Jokic in Denver, what they're doing this year is fantastic too. But the Eastern Conference, I would look at Milwaukee, the the injury stats of Janssen Tedekumpo. He hurt his wrist in the last game. I think he's getting an MRI this week to look at his wrist, so hopefully it's not long-term for him. But I would say them and Boston atop the East are the two teams to watch out for here. And I think more of a Pacers point here to, to close my point on here. They're, they're live over under for wins this year. It's 35 and a half on FanDuel. And, and I think that kind of shows a lot of losing to come for the Pacers. Uh, I, I don't really see a lot of winning coming. Maybe a couple good nights here and there. But we've seen the stretch already where they've been on a, a really cold stretch with Halliburton out for most of that. But just I, I want to see competitiveness. I want to see guys like Mathurin get a lot of minutes. And I also want to see them kind of hopefully get that lottery luck there because if they can somehow lose some games here and get a top top three, potentially top two, then that would change a lot of things there. Who's the MVP? Good one. That's a good one. I would definitely say Nikola Jokic. I think it's him or Embiid right now for sure in the top two. But I would go Nikola Jokic to 3P, which I think hasn't been done since Larry Bird in 1985, which says just incredible yeah. about Nikola Jokic and his run and what he's been on the last three years. Yeah, you, uh, you watch him play. It is incredible to watch to watch him work in the fashion in which he does. And, you know, not overwhelm you with athleticism. It's just such a high level in all areas of basketball skill. It is pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. Yeah, he's he's a player that I don't think general NBA fans appreciate enough. We'll look back on in 10 or 15 years and say, wow, we saw Nikola Jokic win three MVPs in a row and put up a triple-double for almost three straight years, and he's seven foot. He looks like the average guy at the YMCA. He's not really the most athletic guy out there. I just think what he's doing, it's so unique in Denver. And they have a team this year that can really make some noise in the West, too. Yeah, no doubt about that. Evan Sidery of Basketball News, my friend, I appreciate that. We'll stay in touch over the rest of the NBA season, and especially before we get into the postseason and see what's going on. Absolutely, John. Anytime you need me, appreciate it. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. The Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. One of the reasons why I brought this up is because I think Jake Query and Kevin Bowen this morning on the morning show were talking about you know some of the connections and the relatables with these teams in the state finals this Saturday. And there's one for you right there regarding some background. A, a quick thumbnail sketch of Jeff Allen, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And we were talking about it this morning because Kevin was asking – you know, about Bailey coaching there. Right. That was when Damon's kids were playing there. Um, and I didn't know who immediately followed him. So that was pretty cool that he's an Eastern Green guy. So that – do you guys arm wrestle for, for notable alumni section? Nah, he would kill – Wikipedia page? He would He would kill me. His, um, his parents – his mom just recently passed away. His mom and my mom were, were really good friends. They Actually, he grew up literally a quarter of a mile down the road from me. In, in Owensburg, is, he was just nine that? years older than I was. Yeah, pardon my naivete here, because yeah. I know it's been mentioned a lot on this program. Tell me the the name of your hometown, and then in what town is your high school? Located? Owens Owensburg, Indiana, is my hometown, and it it has two hundred and fifty people. I think is the population, if that many. And uh, 
Eastern Heights is where Eastern Green is located, and or Eastern Heights or Little Cincinnati is what it calls. So Eastern High School, Eastern Green's made up of Owensburg, Salisbury, Hendricksville, Eastern Heights, Little Cincinnati, Ridgeport, and uh, Hobbyville. And then what is the county seat of Green County? Bloomfield. Okay. So yeah. you get so like if you gotta go to jail, you go to Bloomfield. Yes. I've never you done that either. I've never had the pleasure. That yeah. What's that? <laughs> I said, and you know no one from your graduating class <laughs> never had to go to jail. Yeah. There was no way we were driving cars well before we had our license down there. No way that ever that's happened. Right. So that's right. It, that's those are, that's the part of the state where you talk to people and they're like, I learned to drive a tractor when I was eight. You're like, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's funny. People always said, oh, wow, you're getting a driver's license. It's such a big deal. And I'm thinking we were driving around when we were 12, old cars around there all the time. I, like we, we had motorcycles. We all had off-road motorcycles and we drove to Bloomington through back roads. We drove to Bloomfield through back roads. You can get to Bedford through back roads. Pretty incredible. Yeah. Do you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I went to IU. I've never been to the Corys. I never yeah. went, like, yeah. I, I want to say they were pretty much closed by the time I was in college, and you really couldn't even get to them. But, like, I know, like, Pat Knight used to go there, because I would say he grew up in the area, so he, he did. knew where they were. Yeah. But I've never been. Did you ever go, like, rock diving? Um, I did not. I, I was. I probably wasn't going to jump off of uh, one of those quarry rock formations into water where you didn't know if there was going to be a big rock, you know, three feet under the water or <laughs> if it was going to be yeah. better than that. I, yeah, I, I went out there before, but I don't. I didn't do any jumping. I think I went out there when it wasn't even the summer once. So, I, And I don't even know. Can you even, if you wanted to, can you even get back to the quarries now, or is it I I don't even think off? they're even back there anymore. Yeah, so I mean, I've got a lot of listeners from Ellettsville that could tell me that for real, but I don't even think they're back there. For example, where they did that in in breaking away that particular scene or those couple of scenes, I don't think that even exists any longer. I could be wrong, yeah, but I think I mean, they I had to clean it up. I just went to go see a re-release of Going All the Way, which was done. Ben Affleck was in it, and it was in 97 when they filmed it, 96, something like that. And they filmed scenes in the quarries, and I don't think where the, I don't think that's still there. I mean, I, don't, yeah. I guess they didn't just fill them in, but I, you know, I have no idea. But yeah, you know, I don't. I don't think you. Going. If you're Mooch, I don't think you could dive in. Oh no, I'm sorry. Was it Mooch or was it Mike? It was Mike that like went in the refrigerator and shut the door, and they thought. He was stuck in there, but it had the back of it was off. Remember that scene? Oh yeah. So there's a lot of places in Bloomington that no longer exist that were awesome in terms of being in the film breaking away. The pizza place, yeah, notwithstanding, sure. no doubt. Yeah, the the union where they throw the bowling ball through. <laughs> I mean, that's last time I was at IU, I went to the union. They used, used to be like a food court. Now it's yeah. like Starbucks. What the hell is this? I'm telling you, we had our uh, our prom was in the what's it called? The Frangy Panty Room, whatever in the Memorial yeah, Union. Our junior prom was there. Used to be hanging out too much. That's right. Yeah, well, I mean, we have the class of '84, and I've told this on the show before. They have incredible photos and i'll have to to bring them in and show them sometime in the yearbook of the uh, the tryouts of the men's olympic team at 84 
in the class of 84, that was before I was in junior high still, they had the prom there, and there are photos of some of the, the players trying out for the Olympic team dancing with the girls of Eastern. Now, who would have been, other than Barkley, here, here's a good trivia question for you. That yeah. 84 Olympic team you're talking about, Barkley was – I think Barkley was simply cut. Do you know who the top alternate was for that team? It wasn't Stockton, was it? It was Stockton. Uh, yeah, there was Stockton and there was – so there were two. I can't remember who the other was. But Malone, Stockton, was Carl, did Carl Malone try out from Louisiana Tech? Yeah, I don't – I mean, one would think he, he surely I, I would have been on the list. He was a, an 85 guy. I think he came to the NBA in 85, which would have been Correct. a year he prior. The same year as Tisdale, right. Yeah. But, I just remember, you know, Barkley getting cut was such a huge deal at that time. And then, you know, everybody, Alfred kind of got bad mouth because yes. he's like, he's only on the team because of night, but he turned out to be one of their better shooters. But that team, man, Leon Wood, Alvin Robertson, Vern Fleming obviously was on it. You know, I think I told you when I was at IU, John, and I, and I was friends with Pat Knight. And one time we went over to his mom's house. I probably told you this story. And we were going down in the basement in his mom's house, and on the ceiling of the stairwell, as you go down the basement, there was a poster, like, scotch-taped on the ceiling, and it was the Olympic, 84 Olympic team po- promotional poster signed in gold paint pen by the entire roster. Man, that's awesome. And it's just hanging in the basement. Yeah. I'm like, it's got Jordan Perkins, Worthy. <laughs> uh, not Worthy, obviously. Jordan Perkins, Tisdale, Ewing, Mullen. I'm like, good Lord, man. Yeah. Just hanging there as if it's like a promotional poster for Wendy's. Yeah, Joe Klein and John Konkak and Jeff Turner. Yeah, Klein and Konkak. Yeah. Jeff Turner, did you say that from uh, Vanderbilt? Jeff, Jeff Turner from Vanderbilt, yeah. Yeah, that the greatest amateur team ever assembled. Anyway, Je- uh, hey, by the way, Jeff Turner was era? Jeff Turner would be so like the type of night player. You, you could get that. I remember getting that, you know, kind of the count on him to do anything type of guy. You know what I mean? Not necessarily you had enough scoring, you had all this. I mean, really, they had Jordan, so what were you going to do? And Knight knew that. But it the Jeff Turner was kind of the, the Swiss Army knife that always didn't get enough credit, but you always knew that or at least expected Bob Knight would want somebody like that as a part of the team. Of course. And, I mean, you always had to have, you know, and that's – like Leon Wood and Albert Robertson. I mean, were they great offensive point guards? No, but they were good defenders. Vern Fleming could obviously facilitate. And then you had all the, you know, you had all the shooting you needed between Alford and Mullen for crying out loud. And then you had Tisdale as a mid range game. I mean, it, you know, they, look, the way they were assembled, and I guess I'm going back to my night sycophant of, of that age range, but they were assembled the way he wanted the team assembled. And obviously it worked, right? And to your point, they probably could have had Jordan, I mean, Jordan, Ewing, and Tisdale. Those three alone. They could have had those three and then me, you, and Kevin Bowen. Yeah. probably won it, right? <laughs> no, doubt. No, no doubt. Hey, which version of Sam Perkins did you like better? The one that we saw here where he was, you know, basically a set shot three-point guy or the one that was more mobile and tough to deal with on the interior, left-handed, long and lean? Because he he had a couple of, of versions of Sam Perkins, even over the course of his NBA career. Which was your favorite? Because he, he still remains one of my favorite pacers of all time. Oh, Loved him. Loved I mean, him. Obviously, look, recency and and, and – locality bias, I'm going with with the Pacer Perkins, the big smooth. 
But the versatility of his game, especially like in the Dallas years, was was really fun to watch. And I think I've told you before, one of the most fascinating things ever, and this comes courtesy of Mark Monteith, but Monteith was so intrigued by Perkins late in his career signing with Indiana that he wanted to know if, if Perkins just liked the fact that he could hang out on the three-point line and, and just be a veteran leader and kind of asked him a question leading into that, like how important was it to be a leader and to come to a team where you know that they had really good players? And Perkins said, no, nah, man, more than anything else, after spending the vast majority of my career in Seattle, I just wanted to go to a, to a team where I never had more than a three-hour flight anywhere. And yeah. Indianapolis was centrally located. Yeah. And I thought, you know what, that's probably a good point, though. Can you imagine if you played for Miami or Seattle and you know that 90% of the flights you take for away games are five hours or more? Dude, that would get old fast. Yeah, um, maybe the Seattle thing. Well, I don't, the Miami thing is not going to get old for anybody anymore. It, it, you know what? It would be great if that angle could be utilized and realistic in this era. You know what I mean? Instead of it yeah. just being a flyover place where uh, a lot of folks say that they're in and out of really quick and don't really care. Then hopefully in the future, yeah, Tyrese right. Halliburton is not one of those. You got to hope, right? I mean, you got to hope that Halliburton, Matherin, and then whoever they draft, you know, they're going to have three of the top 35 picks in this year's draft, assuming they hold on to them. If you can get one or two of them in that, man, three three years from now, they could be really, really good. But they got to hope everybody sticks around. Yeah. I was thinking about that, though. The uh, the frangy panty room was uh, – it was I, that was like only in eighth grade um, – when when the 84 thing happened but those pictures are are pretty good but it was always interesting having our prom right there in the memorial union when you know everybody would just kind of walk by and poke their head in sometimes come in there it was it was kind of cool by the way somebody just texted me and this is correct and i can't believe we spaced this what's that the other uh, and thank you for whoever just texted me this the other uh, alternate john stockton and chuck person oh Burson. yeah yeah we yeah we should have known that yeah, yeah. So that. for some reason I thought Malone was, but maybe I was wrong about that too. So I mean, he definitely would have been in the tryouts for certain. He would have to have been. Yeah, I know that John Wertheim, the Bloomington North High School, that's on sixty minutes, did a uh, did a story about that. What in the last year, two years, or something like that? So maybe it was longer, whatever. He did an interesting story because he was in Bloomington at the time. As I think he was around my age, maybe just a tad younger, maybe a. a, a grade lower than i was and remember those times too where you saw these these guys everywhere i mean there wasn't a lot to do they were playing video games in the memorial union and you know you'd see them in the college ball and things it was an interesting summer to say yeah. the least spring and summer have i guess I told you if i have stopped me i'm sure i have have i mentioned on this program with you before the bob knight digger phelps uh jay burson story from the 84 olympics the Jay Bur- Any story involving okay. Jay Burson, I got to hear. Let's do it. So, so Pat Knight told me this. So Digger Phelps helped out with the selection process for the 84 Olympic team. George Ravlin and um, D.M. Newton were the assistant coaches, I think. And then Krzyzewski and Digger Phelps helped out with the process because Knight and Phelps were good friends. So they all show up to help out with the, the whole process of selecting the team. And Knight says, hey, guys, I got another guy here who's – He's a high school coach over in Ohio, and he just loves basketball and wanted to be a part of this, and he's from the same area of the state that I'm from. So he wrote me a letter and just wants to be a part of it. So Digger, he's going to help you out, whatever you need over the next couple of weeks. You just let him know, whatever. 
So Digger Phelps apparently is completely a condescending jerk to this guy for two weeks. Calls him towel boy and water boy, never calls him by his name, has him do all kinds of demeaning things, fetch me this, fetch me that, half flippant and half serious. This goes on for like two weeks. Of course, this is pre-Street and Smith, pre-Rivals, pre-ESPN.com, pre-Internet, obviously. So they get to the end of the, the two weeks, and Digger Phelps says, by the way, I didn't even ask, man. Like, so what part of Ohio are you from? The guy says, Springfield or wherever he was from. And Digger goes, oh, really? Yeah, there's a kid over there that apparently my assistant's been all over recruiting, just can shoot from anywhere. And I guess he's basically down to Ohio State and us, and so therefore I've got to get involved in the recruiting, go over and make home business and whatnot. You, what do you know about a kid named Jay Burson? The guy goes, well, I know he's my son. In effect, two weeks ago, he's going to Ohio State. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Jay Burson was an incredible scorer. He and was, the only man. thing I remember was him wearing that big halo that brace. Yeah. yeah, he had the, he had that terrible neck injury mm. and had to wear that brace. He was a heck of a player. I mean, he was like 5'10 and, and 200 pounds soaking wet at the 160 pounds probably. But he could light it up, man. He could shoot. Yeah, no doubts about that. It's uh, Jay Query for the morning show. Kevin and Query, weekday morning, 7 until 10 a.m. with us here on 93.5 and 107.5, the fan of the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. So uh, go ahead and lock and load the Jim Bob Cooter jokes because here we go again. You're right. Former offensive assistant for the Colts for, you know, for three years, I think. And, um, you know, circuitous route to get back here, but – Keep in mind, though, John, and, and I don't know, and, and I'm going to sound like an idiot. I, I mean, I get the fact, Kevin and I talked about it. I mean, just because he's offensive coordinator, as it appears as though he's going to be for the Colts, that is not to say that he's, you know, he's not going to be calling the plays, right? Right, so he's he'll, not. He'll oversee and set up the offense, but then he's, so basically, I guess essentially he'll prepare the menu, but he's not the one that's selecting the main dish. There's right? no doubt about that. Yes. So yeah. it's basically what Frank Reich did in Philly, right? So yeah, that's exactly yeah. what the enemy's doing in Kansas. Exactly. City, yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. You know. And then that other story that you mentioned is an interesting one of, you know, who knows what quarterback he'll be working with. But it's entirely possible that, and I think we know that Matt Ryan's not going to be around, but. When Matt Ryan starts talking about broadcasting, I think that means that Matt Ryan is well aware of the handwriting on the wall. No, I don't. Yeah, there's zero, zero question about that. So, yeah, that is that is the direction in which we're going. Alan Stanley brought up, don't forget about Dallas Comedies with DePaul. Dallas Comedies was later in the 80s. I was going early. Yeah, I was going early. Early 80s. When DePaul was really good, DePaul was really good then. There was all They were always on NBC. They were an independent, and if you look back at their schedule, it is weird, but they um, they were incredibly – they went to the Final Four in 79. I think they were there, obviously, playing Indiana State. But if I remember correctly, they were disappointments in both 80 and then in 81 because that's when the – when IU played the regional assembly hole, I think they were supposed to be one of the teams there, and I believe – they were they supposed to be there. St. Joe's. St. Joe's beat them, and then did UAB beat Kentucky? Is that how that went? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. because I know that St. Jo- you know DePaul was the number one seed in the region, and St. Joe's upset them, and that really paved the path for Indiana, no question. And then Indiana did beat UAB, right? Right. They beat UAB, yeah. and I remember I was at that regional, and it was it's shocking. 
to know when Assembly Hall was hosting an NCAA tournament regional and how completely unfair that would have been for anybody in that building. Well, that 81 team, for many years, had the record for the largest margin, average margin of victory in the tournament. And I think Vegas in 90 came close to it. I think they still had the record, even though Vegas beat Duke by 30 in the 90 finals. But, I mean, they steamrolled everybody, man. They blew LSU out in the semifinal by, like, 18. They obviously beat Carolina by 13 in the championship game. I mean, once Isaiah took that team over, it was over with, man. Right. And they were off and running. So. I believe their first game was against Buck Williams and Albert King of Maryland, too. So yeah. That's well, not Maryland, that's not too bad played, at all. I, I'm pretty certain they played Maryland in the 76 tournament, too, didn't they? Might have. I just remember Buck Williams, who had a, a storied NBA career as certainly a rebounder, and for the most part in in New Jersey and in Portland. But uh, Albert King was a fantastic scorer back in the day too. They were really good. Yeah, they were. They were, and you know, actually, one of those years, I think it was '81. Arkansas was really good too, which. You know, Eddie Sutton's Arkansas group was really good. That's when they hit a half-court shot. That's U.S. Reed in 81 hit a half-court shot, and they beat Louisville. I mean, you know what? I've got actually sitting right here, John. I got the – we're going to test it right here. I've got a book (laughs) with the 81 bracket. Oh, no. Not a test. We're going to look it up. Uh Oh, we're all going to get tested by Jay Query here. I'm ready. 1981 NCAA tournament. Here we go. Finding Indiana's path. Uh, Indiana, coming out of the Mid-East region, yep. which doesn't even exist anymore, obviously. Uh, you know, it, that's the other thing, too, that's so funny. Is you had buys back then, right, which is weird. So they had to beat Maryland. Then after they beat Maryland, they had to beat Alabama-Birmingham, who had defeated Kentucky. And then that got them into the regional final where they beat St. Joe's, who had upset DePaul. Yeah. And then they, yeah, they blew out LSU and then... Nice teamwork on that, man. That that Kentucky team was Dirk Menefield, Brett Barrup, Sam Bowie. Um, I was think J- Jim, Mas- Jim Master was on that team but came off the bench, I think. That Kentucky was, team was, was pretty good, and they were not happy in the Bluegrass State. Well, you know what? I, I guarantee <laughs> you I was plenty happy because there are a few things in my life I hate, but Kentucky's one of them. Was uh where, where was Boston College? Was Boston College in the picture? Somehow I remember uh, Boston College being a part of that Mideast region. Am I wrong? You talking about in the eighty one bracket? Yeah. All right, stand by. Uh, Boston College was in fact defeated by St. Joe's in the in the Sweet Sixteen before St. Joe's went on and lost to Indiana. Indiana beat St. Joe's by thirty two. Man. Yeah, that was a that was the Michael Adams Boston Cup. Michael Adams, maybe John Bagley, Boston College team, but maybe most notable because if the story is accurate, I believe Auburn head coach Bruce Pearl was in the Eagle mascot costume in Bloomington during that. Yeah, Uh, Boston College. By the way, I'm looking at their score where they beat actually they beat Ball State ninety three ninety in the first round of that uh, in the first round there. Uh, Bagley was their leading scorer. He had 19. Yep. I think they had Bagley, Jay Murphy, and Michael Adams may either be a starter or he was coming off the bench, scoring a lot of points then. So. Uh, I, I don't see Adams. Oh, really? Uh, Murphy, 80... had, Murphy had 13. All right. Maybe it have been 80. Maybe it was 82 for Adams. Anyway, that's, um, it's interesting to see the evolution of that, certainly. DePaul is altogether. the one, John, that I just, you know, I don't know that people now realize how dominant DePaul was as a program when Ray Meyer was getting all those guys out of Chicago and 
I mean, they, it was so much fun back then, with yeah. how good they were and the players that they had. I mean, Rod Strickland in later years, and then, you know, it just fell off. And, I mean, now it's like they're completely forgotten about. I mean, Houston at least was a dominant program back then that's obviously back at the top. But I would love to see DePaul get back to that level. DePaul and Memphis State were two of them that were just dominant programs in the early to mid-'80s as well. No doubt about that. Well, I mean, you had, you had DePaul, Memphis Memphis State then, uh, Houston certainly then, and, you know, they're kind of re- reliving that that level high-quality basketball right now with Kelvin Sampson. But DePaul, you know, you had Aguirre, you had – Terry Cummings was a part of that. I mentioned Tyrone you know, Corbin. They, they mean, had some really big NBA, high-quality, high-scoring level names. I mean, look, UAB uh, was, a, was a good program then. Yeah. I mean, UAB was – you know, that was – I think people now would hear that and go, UAB, come on. No, UAB was a legit program. I mean, when Gene Bardo was there, they were – I mean, that was a strong yep. program. Yep, it was. It was. All right, what you guys doing tomorrow morning that we need to be aware of? What's happening? Well, I can assure you that, uh, you know, the conversation just like what we're talking about with some of the changes <laughs> now with the Colts offensively, not to talk about the 83 tournament. That, that probably is not. No, good. no, no. That's 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 OK, though. This is basketball time of year right now. So it's soaking up to here here on the now. I, you, you look at IU and Purdue coming up on on Saturday. Um. You, you look at IU tomorrow night at Michigan State. I'd, I'd love to see them stay clean and get to Purdue. And, and it, listen, it's going to be a fever pitch anyway. We know that, but it'd be nice to see IU stay clean and, and make that even more eventful with that matchup coming up on Saturday night. I can't wait well, for we'll it. Preview IU and Michigan State. We'll preview it tomorrow with Dane Fife at nine o'clock. Joe Rice is going to join us at eight thirty tomorrow. Um, so we'll have we'll have everything covered tomorrow. Start at seven a.m. and run up till ten. Ah, can't wait for that too. And Jim Bob Cooter, I'm sure you guys will be talking about that, right? JBC is I'll call him. I'm just going to call him JBC. <laughs> the JBC. <laughs> the J- JBC. Hey, by the way, we haven't been together. I'm just curious about this. How long are you guys going to be down at the combine every single day? Last year I was, and I can't remember if it was timing or I was doing remotes or what. But how can I? How can I reassure of me not being down there? Is there a way? Tell them that <laughs> here's what you do. If you don't, so you don't want to go down, right? Is that what yeah. you're saying? Okay. Tell them that you just got an email from the NFL that says only one show per station can be live. I, and, and listen, the only reason I do want to go, if I can get Ballard, so you, if I can you get Ballard, I'd go, but I just don't, I don't want to go down there where I sit by myself for three hours. Yeah, because I think everything's kind of done by the time you get yeah. on, right? If I can get Chris Ballard on, I would do that. I'm just kind of curious where all that may stand right now. Are you? You know, <laughs> I know that Mark – I know our bosses and Mark and Kevin iron out a lot of that stuff. We're down there for two days and yeah. I think three. I'm not sure if we're down there for two or three. The best part about it last year was the other teams had, like, set up kind of like their Lara Overton and Matt Taylor and, you know, like yeah. their internal stuff. And each day when everybody would get there about 7.30, and then as I was leaving at 10.15 each day, the Raiders guys would show up, and they looked like they'd been out all night. It was the best. They all had been at Tiki Bob's all night. It was the best. Can't do that now, baby. Um, no. I know. Yeah, you think about this. Two years ago when I was down there, Tom Telesco, who runs the Chargers, came over. And, of course, you know, back in the day with Polian, he was here 
and it is there's always this interesting moment when I'm down there. It sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, and and this was good. I I did not know if you remember when Bill Polian and Jay Moore had that argument on WNDE, a place where we both worked. It was where I was the producer and Mark Patrick was the host, and Bill Polian, the the general manager, team president of the Colts, got in an argument with actor comedian Jay Moore. Oh, yeah. um, Tom Telesco told me that he was actually in the room during that. He was um, some kind of special assistant, early stages of his career, told me he was in the room. And the one thing that he verified was the story that I had told about media relations guru Craig Kelly trying to hang up the phone as Polian was yelling at Jay Moore. He was reaching over Polian trying to hang it up, and Polian was fighting him off with his forearm. <laughs> because he didn't want him to hang up the phone and i said he told me that and i just i about lost it uh, that was fantastic we will not move forward, will not move forward. <laughs> <laughs> how about the best part of that call and everybody's heard it yes. the best part of the call is when polian says he wants to read what jay moore had said on with Jim Rome. The transcript. When he read the transcript, the transcript I thought it was one of the greatest moments in the history of radio here. It was. Hey, Romy, dude, what's happening? And then he pauses and goes, I'm reading this verbatim. <laughs> really? <laughs> Epic show today, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Not a fan of Ursay. End quote. Oh, that was so good. So good. Hey, the one thing I did want to ask you, and I know where I'm way over here, but one final thing. What do you think about the Peyton Manning uh, Indianapolis 500 stuff? You like that? I, I, I do. Um, it's funny because it took me a second to realize who it was, to be honest with you. Um, I, I mean, when I saw the initial release of that promo and the, the, the commercial for IMS, it took me a second, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. This is Peyton Manning voicing this. And that part of it is pretty cool because, you know, Manning is the first to say that this was a racing town when he got here, and he helped transform it into a football town. There's no doubt about that. Um, but Peyton Manning still to this day resonates to a lot of people nationally, obviously, what is sports relevant and sports cool. And for his voice to be attached to something – tells people outside of the city of Minneapolis that the Speedway must be pretty darn cool. So that aspect of it is a home run. If you look back on that decision that was made to depart from the Manning era and move to the Luck era, you think if we got to go back and do it all over again, you think it would be different knowing what we know now? Uh, Of course. Would would it easily be different? Would they just stuck it out, hoped he came back, hoped you could put something together even with having to cut – a lot of those guys from that golden era, you think they would stick with it now instead of really listen, he's, he still comes back and, you know, obviously smiles when doing everything, but it's different. Is it not? Oh, I mean, it's much different. If that never happens and hindsight's 2020 and it was the right call at the time in that moment in the vacuum. But if that never happens, and the Manning cast is taking place from 80th in, in Pennsylvania. Marshall Manning's an eighth grader right now or whatever he is, getting ready to go play at Park Tudor and throw for 4,000 yards a game. And ESPN's there. Manning's courtside at like every third pacer game. I mean, he is a staple in the city of Indianapolis. And 
lives here like Archie did in New Orleans for the rest of his life if that never happens. I am 1,000% convinced of that. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, I realize it was the right call in the time in the vacuum, but it definitely leaves you wondering what could have been. Jake Query, The Morning Show, Kevin and Query, tomorrow morning, 7 until 10 a.m., and he says Dane Fife's going to be a part of it, so give that bad boy a listen, Jake. It's always a pleasure, man. Appreciate it. All right, John. We'll see you. Thanks.